Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you. Lizzie and Joseph and Nathan and April. God bless you guys. Welcome to Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. Good morning, Joe. It is a beautiful Lord's Day to be in His house, isn't it? Some good, good day to be here. We do have a few families who are not with us this morning letting you know uh, it seems like the season for runny noses and coughs and things have begun. And so be praying for these families. It seems like little ones are germ factories this time of year. Um, and we love them and we care for them. And so some families are staying home today because of that. Matthew chapter 20. As we continue through the chapter, uh, through this gospel, now we're entering into the final chapters of Matthew's gospel. And Jesus's face is more focused than ever on Jerusalem. And so from chapter 20 on, we will be entering into the final days and weeks of our Lord's ministry. Matthew chapter 20 reinforces the teaching of Jesus about the kingdom of heaven. And and the two scenes that we have in Matthew 20 are in response to Peter's pride that was evidenced in his question from chapter 19, verse 27. So Peter's question in 1927, look, we have left everything and followed you, Lord. What then will we have continues to be the basis of the scenes in Matthew 20. The spirit of that interchange between Jesus and Peter is that of earning one's kingdom reward. And Jesus is responding to that question. But just as it's true that With man, salvation is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That's what we saw in 1926. So is it true that with man, earning eternal reward is also possible. But with God, all things are possible. I mean, this is the point of the parable that we're going to look at today, the laborers of the vineyard. And Jesus reinforces the lesson with a parable concerning, I want to say, fair labor practices in the kingdom. I mean, God's sovereignty as the master of his house is always fair and always just. Man's idea of of reward in the kingdom, these just labor practices, we want to look at equality rather than God's sovereignty and his justice. So if you're able to stand, let's stand together as we read Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. These are the words of our Savior. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you, go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? Verse seven. They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. 
Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And then verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for this wonderful parable from your son. It reinforces the truth of your kingdom, that those who are seen as the least and the last in this earthly place are elevated to the highest position of your kingdom in your eternity and in your glory. And so, God, I pray this morning as, as we listen to the words of your son, as we, we, we look at this wonderful parable, we, I pray, Lord, you would help us to see the lesson of this parable. There's, there's a meaning here that you intend for us to understand. And so, God, I pray that you would keep our focus away from our interpretation for our needs and our thoughts and, and cause us, Father, to hear your voice instead. Humble us, Father, through this, as if we elevate ourselves in our own minds higher than we should. Lord, remind us of our true position before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Matthew here takes us into the scene of two major stories. There's two major stories in chapter 20, and they both reinforce Jesus' teaching concerning eternal ambition in the kingdom. I mean, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard and then the second story, the request by the mother of the sons of Zebedee later in the chapter, they're, they're united lessons based, again, off of Peter's question in chapter 19, verse 27. Remember, remember what, here's what he said. He looked at Jesus and said, what's in all of this for us, Jesus? What will be our reward for loving you more than others do? That's at the heart of Peter's question. Remember, he said, look at all we sacrifice. What is our reward? Spiritual pride is at the heart of sinful attitude. Would we agree? And sinful attitudes and pride often plague citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so I think pride here, spiritual pride, is the warning from this parable. I mean, the, the scene in Matthew 20 is that Jesus is walking along with his disciples to Jerusalem. And Matthew will remind us for the third time in this chapter later, in verses 17 through 19, that his purpose in Jerusalem will be suffering, death, and resurrection. We're going to see that again here in a few verses. All of this for the sake of salvation and of the souls of his faithful. I mean, the parable of the laborers here is only found in Matthew's gospel. You're not going to see it in the other gospels. And it drives home the point, again, the first will be last and the last first. I mean, it's a lesson on how the gift of eternal life should be applied. I mean, theological theory is one thing, but practical examples are quite another. We can be theologians and, and, and Bible scholars 
But if we don't see this and live this, even in our own practical experiences, it means nothing. That's why the parables are so important. I mean, Jesus prays and he encouraged Peter and the disciples for their sacrifice in his kingdom. Remember, we looked at that last week in verses 28 through 30. We saw that at the end of chapter 19. Jesus was encouraging the disciples, here is your eternal reward. You'll have 12 thrones in heaven with me. Now he segues into a parable of, don't let your pride get away. You see the point? I don't know if you, you, if if Jesus told me that I was going to sit on a throne beside him in heaven, I would get a big head. Wouldn't you? I'm going to sit on a throne. And guess what I get to do? I judge you. That's what he told the disciples. And so his warning here to them is, don't let this get too big in your heart. Be humble. Look here at verses 1 through 2. For the kingdom of heaven, this is the words of Jesus, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. I mean, the master of the house, or in some translations, is called the householder. I mean, he established, again, a fair labor practice once one enters into the kingdom. This is spoken primarily to those who Jesus has invited to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The master here is clearly our Lord. I mean, the laborers are clearly those who are the redeemed those who are invited into the kingdom, into eternity. And the vineyard, I mean, it's the kingdom of heaven. I mean, they are are chosen by the master, and there is an agreed compensation that is established here between them. Then the laborers enter into the vineyard to do their work. I mean, this is the entry point into salvation. The master comes And he finds us. He offers us a grand vineyard to manage. But notice that the compensation of a denarius a day here, we got to remember, is not a grand amount. Compared to today's average day wage for a day laborer, and that's really about what the the denarius was worth. Now, Now, there are some scholars who argue that in Jesus's day, fair wage was so unusual that the denarius offered here could also represent a generous daily wage. Either way, it was a daily wage. How much, how much do y'all make in a day? If you're a day, not, not an owner of a business, not someone with great uh, investments or someone with a great salary, but somebody who stands on a street corner looking for work for the day, how much can you averagely make in a day? What, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, maybe if you're fortunate, not a lot. That's kind of what we're looking at here. Yet, yet the interpretation that the denarius wage is a generous wage should not mean that the parable to be interpreted by some is that our Lord grants a grand reward. Remember, God gives us silver and gold. He gives us Rolex watches and sports cars, or maybe even the grand mansions in heaven. Well, you know, there's a false teaching that we're all going to get a mansion of our own. You realize that's a false interpretation of the text? It's God's house that we get to be invited into. The term mansion there can be translated really a grand room in God's house. We don't have our own estate in heaven. Sorry to bust your bubble. 
Okay. We're, we're welcomed into God's house as his children. I mean, the denarius was, again, a standard wage for a day laborer. I mean, this master, he finds men in the marketplace who every day look for work so they can feed their families. There are men today who still do that. Now, we've switched the marketplace to an online digital job hunt thing, but there, you can find day work. If you're, anyone who tells me they can't find a job aren't looking very close or they're too picky. There's something you can do every day to earn a few dollars. May not be everything you need, but it's something. I mean, the agreed compensation here is really not a grand sum. That's what I want us to see. I mean, the work itself is not luxurious and it's not grand, but the workers agreed to the wage. I mean, they were in agreement with the master. The vineyard belongs to the master and he desired faithful laborers who will steward it. But I don't want us to get so caught up in verses 3 through 7 and try to figure out who it is that is coming. I mean, clearly from verses 4 through 7, we see in this parable that the master, he continually goes out through the day looking for extra labor, and he calls more people throughout the day. I mean, that's clearly a sign of our Lord calling his people to him. It's, it's, it's an ongoing process. The Lord is always calling us to his glory, calling us to repentance, calling us to salvation. He's constantly out there looking and calling to the point that in, in verses in six and seven, and about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing even up until the 11th hour of the day, he's still looking for stewards in his vineyard. And he said to them, he found some still standing around at the end of a 12-hour workday. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle? Notice the response in verse 7, because no one has hired us. You could say no one has called us and welcomed us home. And he said to them, because no, he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. That's important because that sets up the tension here at the end of the parable. These who were called and entered into the kingdom at the 11th hour were just as welcome as the ones called at the beginning of the day. And that sets up the tension. So let's look here at verses eight through 10. I mean, these verses set the stage in the parable for the primary lesson that's going to be found at the end of the parable. I mean, the master of the house calls together all day long, labors for a long day of work, and it's time to hand out the wages at the beginning in verse 8. But notice the master's purpose in verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Notice this, beginning with the last, up to the first. How'd you like to work for one hour and get paid for a full day? I mean, you're called at the end of the day, you're hired late, you get work for an hour, and oh, by the way, here's your paycheck. That's a great gig. Now, some people will drive for DoorDash and Uber Eats, and they can get paid anytime they want, I believe. You don't have to wait until like the end of the pay period, right? You can work and then at the end of your shift, you can on your phone, just boom, boom, boom and get paid. I guess it's good. 
But you see that? You work for an hour. It's a pretty good gig. Work for an hour, get paid. And you, you get paid before the ones who started 12 hours ago. They still have to wait even longer. That's a great gig. Awesome. Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. This is the strategy of the master of the house. It's his prerogative. This, and it's an odd order of conducting business. I mean, it's a specific instruction on how to distribute the wages. Can't, I don't think we can miss that point. The master of the house is instructing his foreman specifically. This is how I want it done. I mean, he purposely wanted the foreman to pay the last ones hired before he paid the first ones hired. The master of the house knows what he's doing. Very specific. So verse 9. I mean, those hired in the 11th hour were hired again late in the day. That's what the 11th hour means. Just in the nick of time before the day ended. I have students right now, I'm teaching some more online classes, and I have students already in the first week of class turning in their assignments at the 11th hour. How many students in this room still do that? Yeah, Jay back there in the back. Wait until the last minute. Look here in verse 9. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. I mean, how many will be called? How many will be chosen and redeemed by our Lord in the 11th hour of human history? Or at the 11th hour of their human lifespan? I think this is encouraging that our Lord still calls people to salvation and to enter into the kingdom of heaven at the 11th hour. That's, that's hope. That's not reason to delay salvation and to ignore the Lord's voice. But that is hope. I mean, we don't see evidence here in this parable that these who were hired at the 11th hour rejected previous invitations to work. They were invited to work because no one had called them and entered them into a work agreement. Because that's what they said in verse 7, no one has hired us. Had someone hired, had the master hired them earlier in the day, they would not have still been standing around. Look here in verse 13 and 6 through 16. I mean, think about this. Those who were called at the 11th hour of human history, the number is unknown. I, I, I like the way this is articulated in some theological circles. It's called the numberless elect. See, in our minds, we, we, we think finitely and in structure and, and in, we think that there is an absolute number that God has called. He knows who he's going to call. He knows what he's going to call. God knows, we don't know that. From our perspective and our understanding of eternity, from us, it's a numberless elect. We don't know the number. God will call whom he will call, and he will call when he calls. That's what we see here. But, but notice this, those who are called at the 11th hour, their value is important in this parable. The last to be called will not be the least in the eternal glory of heaven. That's important. Look here, verses 13 through 16. This is really the meat of this parable. That's why 
we, we want to look here in verses 13 through 16. This is the moment that Jesus is teaching in response to the previous interactions in chapter 19. In the parable, verse 13, speaking about the grumbling uh, servant who came at the beginning of the day. But he replied to one of them, this is the master, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? That's the lesson. The master is doing nothing wrong when he calls who he calls at the 11th hour. Nor is the master doing anything wrong when he, when he distributes the wages and the reward. He's the master. I don't want us to walk away from any other point than this. The master is the one who is doing what the master does. This is the lesson of the parable. No one has the right to grumble about our Lord's favor or our Lord's reward. If our standard of merit, man's standard of merit, mattered in the kingdom of heaven, many of us listening right now would have never have a seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. If it was up to you and me, if our standards mattered in eternal glory, not many of us in this room would, would make it to the final marriage supper of the Lamb that we read about in, in, in Revelation 19. But because we're, we were not the first Christians in the timeline of church history, that's one argument. Uh, only the patriarchs of the church, the ones in the first century of the timeline of church history, if that argument was true, would be the only ones welcome at the table. I mean, only the patriarchs, the apostles, the ancient church fathers who wrestled out the theological structures of the Trinity and the divine nature of Christ would be there. They earned their crown, didn't they? We all benefit from their efforts, don't we? So if, if our idea about this mattered, that's what the conclusion would be. But John the Revelator writes these words about the final day of eternal celebration at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Go ahead and flip over there. This is the, the final vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb where God's elect, Christ's bride, His church, sits at the marriage feast. Revelation chapter 19, I'm going to begin in verse 7. John the Revelator is writing what Jesus Christ Himself is telling Him to write. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is what? The righteous deeds of the saints. Verse nine. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. That's the point that I think Jesus is making here in the parable of the vineyard. Blessed are those who were invited to labor in the vineyard and blessed are those at the end of the day are given their reward. That's the point. It's not whether or not God is fair. <laughs> it's blessed that you are invited. Agreed? Amen, brothers and sisters? What a joy! I mean, Jesus' point of who is welcome at the end of the workday to be blessed by the master of the house in Matthew, 9, Matthew 20, it speaks boldly in these final verses 
through the voice of the master of the house. Go back to Matthew 19, or Matthew 20, verse 13. He says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? They agreed at the beginning of the day in verse 2 what the wage would be. And then in verse 13, those who were hired at the beginning of the day thought, man, I've earned more. But that's not the case. This agreed compensation, it was, it was agreed, it was deemed by all parties in verse 4 to be whatever is right. Go back to chapter 20, verse 4. Actually, verse 3 and 4. This is when he goes out a second time. The master goes out around the third hour. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, verse 4, and said to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right... I will give you. Underline that. Whatever is right, I will give you. The master of the house is always fair and he's always just. And whatever is right is the compensation. So the first chosen have no right in verse 13 and following to complain that they received a wage equal to the wage of the least or the last the ones who were chosen at the 11th hour, those who were chosen at the first hour of the day have no right to grumble about what happens at the end of the day. Grumbling almost always comes when you have excessive confidence. This is perhaps the warning here from our Lord. I mean, these laborers who were hired in the first hour of the day, early in the morning, were overconfident in themselves that after a full day of labor, they had reached the final goal. I mean, these were the hired, and those who were hired last certainly had not made it as far along the road of sanctification as the ones who were hired at the first of the day. That was their idea. I was hired at the beginning of the day, Master. Here after 12 hours of work, haven't I gone much further down the road than those who were hired just an hour ago? There's an overconfidence in their, in their voice. I mean, this overconfidence will cause pride in the Christian to stop in the middle of the course, to stop in the middle of the Christian journey, rather than to push on to the end, grateful to be in the presence of the Lord. Pride in the Christian heart will stop us in the middle of our journey with our Lord. Humility will cause us to endure to the end. This is perseverance of the saints doctrine. Persevere to the end. Perseverance of the saints is evidence of someone who is loyal and faithful and worthy of our Lord's attention and his glory. Not that we've earned it. It's evidence of his glory in us and his strength in us to endure. But if we give up in the middle of the journey, folks, with the idea and the overconfidence, I've done enough. What do we miss out on? I mean, th th this hope that we have for eternal glory is revealed to be in Christ, not in us. I mean, those who have overconfidence, like those who are hired first in the vineyard, they have run the race but stopped too soon thinking they've done enough. Certainly, all this hard labor is enough. You ever worked with somebody who quits in the middle of the job and doesn't finish it? How do y'all feel about that person? 
Listen, we've got... You fire them. That's what Bill, that's what Bill does in his business. We've got a job to finish and you stop before it's over thinking you've done enough or you're too tired. You get fired. That's what this master should have done. But even there, his grace is still there. Despite your grumbling, I'm still paying you what we agreed. See that? Now, perseverance is part of the lesson. We the redeemed, we the faithful Christian, we will, this will be evidence in who we are at the end as we persevere to the end. Take what belongs to you, the, uh, the master says, and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Look here in verse 15. Here's the conclusion. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? How many people do we know who are ungrateful? Christians, have we become so complacent that we have, lo- we have lost our gratitude of the eternal reward that our Savior offers? Here's how we can conclude this. I mean, many who teach this parable reduce the meaning to the general equality of all citizens in the kingdom of heaven. If you read commentaries, that's what you're going to see. This shows us that God sees all of us the same and we're all equal in the kingdom. I'm going to argue that's not what's here. Equal because the heavenly inheritance is not obtained by the merits of works, but granted freely. I mean, the blessings of salvation by the Lord are given freely to all. What is the reward here? What are the wages that are given here? The wages from the master is eternal life. There are no levels of eternity, folks. Eternity is as it is, as it should be for all who are welcomed into it. If we think of eternity with levels, we're missing the understanding of eternity. I think the point that Jesus is making here is something different in the context of Peter's question. Remember his question in 1927? What will we have in your kingdom, Jesus, for sacrificing all we have? And then the question from the rich young ruler, the rich young man in 1920, when he was boasting, I have kept the commandments of the law from childhood. What more do I lack? They're thinking about levels of merit. What more must I do to obtain more reward. But remember, the, the the meaning of the question from the rich young ruler was, his question was, how do I obtain what? Eternal life. The point here is eternity. Foundationally, those who enter the kingdom are saved from their sins by Jesus. They are ransomed from death by Jesus' death. Jesus' blood ushers in a new covenant, one where the guilt of sin no longer dominates. Matthew's gospel, we've got to remember this, Matthew's gospel points out clearly that faith is empty without a corresponding change of life, genuine conversion. And this gospel emphasizes Jesus' expectation of a radical change in all of his redeemed. But think about who wrote this gospel. Matthew was a despised tax collector the last one that anyone would expect to have favor with God. I 
think Matthew is including this parable when the other gospel writers don't because Matthew knew this intimately about his Savior. He loved me enough, one who was cast aside and looked down upon by the rest of the society. Jesus welcomed me into eternity with him. Me, of all people, I am worthy because my Father in heaven through his Son sees me as worthy. That's Matthew. I mean, Matthew's gospel points this out. He's pointing out that Jesus is teaching in a particular context here. The context is in the discussion about eternity, not one's merit in the kingdom service, nor about whether my role is equal to your role, nor is it about the Lord viewing everyone equally. Instead, I think the point here by Jesus is that no one earns their way into his glory. No one has a higher position in the kingdom based on one's obedience or service. Heavenly glory is eternity. Heavenly glory is not bestowed equally concerning the future condition of the godly. God will establish reward as God establishes reward. It's not equal. Jesus only declares that those who were chosen first in time, see, we're thinking of a temporal thing. First, in timeline. He's saying that those who were chosen first in timeline have no greater share in heaven's glory than the ones chosen last in time. Again, a very temporal thing. Eternity is not temporal. You know that word? Eternity is not defined by our timeline of this present finite reality. And so if we take that concept into expecting eternal reward in some type of a hierarchy and level of what I have earned, we're taking this finite existence into an understanding of an eternal glory existence. We don't do that. Likewise, the choosing of the elect, think about this, is, is the, the choosing of the elect is the kingdom of heaven as we enter into it. Eternity is not temporal. Eternity is not limited by finite time. The kingdom of heaven is not temporal, nor is the kingdom of heaven limited by finite time. Likewise, the choosing of the elect is not determined on a timeline. I think that's the point. Those who were chosen first and those who were chosen last. Our Lord says those who were chosen last will receive a reward. Sometimes greater, often greater than those who were chosen first. The last will be first and the first last. Instead, think about this. The choosing of the laborers in the vineyard is about the one who calls and the one who chooses more so than the ones who were chosen. That's the point. The point is in verses 13 through 16, it's the, it's the master of the house who's declaring, friend, I'm not doing anything unfair here. I'm not doing anything wrong. Did we not agree with the wage? Then verse 14, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to these last workers as I give to you. I choose. Verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? 
Or do you begrudge my generosity? Are we, are we, are we begrudging the generosity of forgiveness and salvation? How many Christians, um, Christians, are, how many times do we fall into that sin? We fail to be grateful. We fail to give praise where it is rightly due. Instead, we want and demand what is mine. Instead, this master, the choosing of the laborers in the vineyard, again, is about the one who calls. It's about the master of the house. It's about how he chooses, who he chooses, and what he, what he does with his own possessions. He alone, the master of the house, declares that those who were first in point of time have no bragging rights. So when we get to heaven and when we get to the final judgment throne on judgment day, I would say those who were called in the first century of the church to repentance have no more bragging rights than you and I do. We're all judged. And the master of the house rewards as he sees fit. He alone declares those who were first will be last and those who were last will be first. Now, not only does he declare that those who were first in point of time have no bragging rights like these 12 disciples, he called them early in his ministry and he's warning them, don't get the big head, nor do those who were called first have the right to belittle the latecomers? Those who were late to the eternal entry into the kingdom. Eternity is the point. Being first in line is the point. Don't belittle those who came late. That's his point. The Lord chooses whomever and whenever he pleases. I think that's the other takeaway from this. The master of the house, he's continually going out, finding those to call into the vineyard, to be a part of his vineyard, to work and labor as his people, as his stewards, and the Lord chooses whomever he wants and whenever he pleases. He may call those whom he pleases, and he may establish whom he pleases in whatever status or rank that he pleases. That's the Lord's prerogative. The Lord may disregard whom he pleases and he may embrace whom he pleases. He may choose to make the last of whom he calls the first in eternal glory if he wants to. That's the point. But overall and completely, the Lord calls us to enter what? Into eternal glory, to enter into his reward. And the last will be first and the first will be last. That's a continual theme here. Let's drive that point home. Nathan, come on forward. Folks, let me ask you here at the end of this parable in verses 15 and 16. I mean, the master of the house asks the, the grumbling servants, do you begrudge my generosity? Do you belittle my generosity? Are, are you ungrateful for my generosity? Are you ungrateful for the fact that I called you first into my vineyard? And now you're not happy? Did the children of Israel do the same when, when God called them out of slavery in Egypt? How long did it take for them to start murmuring and complaining? It was the very first meal that God sent them from heaven, and they weren't happy with it either. 
folks, how, how, how often do we in church life do this? We get so wrapped up in grumbling about the, the little things that we forget eternal glory is the point. So I pray that as we close here, I, I, want, I want to just ask you to ponder this question. Do you begrudge our Lord's generosity? And let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your kingdom truth. We thank you for your word. To God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who, who loved us so much. He calls us to himself and he invites us into eternal glory. He forgives us of our sin and he changes, he regenerates us. He makes us new. Your spirit, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the Father, the Holy Spirit, all, you, you change us, Lord, and you make us new, but we are still dwelling in this sinful reality and we do fall. And so God, I pray that in your grace, you remind us of the truth of this parable that we do not earn favor, nor do we earn our eternal reward. Remind us of who gives us that reward. Remind us of the, remind us of who invites us to stand beside him in eternal glory. And will, Lord, will you give us contentment and satisfaction in that? We thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.